The following program, The Kitchen Table Progressives, is sponsored by The Kitchen Table Progressives and to the extent applicable, their guests. The views and opinions expressed therein do not necessarily reflect those of News Web Radio Company or its management. Welcome to Kitchen Table Progressive. Paul Richardson here, inviting you to join us around the table for an hour of casual conversation on law, civics, and politics, driving the current issues where the menu is progressive and the table manners are unapologetically liberal. Hope you had a, uh, a lovely Thanksgiving, great dinner, and uh, didn't descend into fisticuffs, uh, at least not before everyone had eaten. After that, it's likely to, and maybe not at the table. You know. If, by the way, uh, if things are too peaceful and there's just not enough uh, dissension at the table, uh, I would recommend you know the uh, the Donald Trump technique of snatching food off other people's plates with your fingers and just popping it in your mouth and saying, "You weren't going to eat that. You weren't going to. You shouldn't be eating that anyway. You're getting a bit pudgy, aren't you? You're getting a little porky. You know. You shouldn't be eating that. Yeah. And just take it and eat it. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I hope you had a, a you know, a, a great Thanksgiving, and uh, you're not too sick of turkey. I, I like turkey, but uh, three days in a row is all I could do. And uh, so uh, this evening, uh, my lovely dear friend DoorDashed me some spaghetti and meatballs. So that was uh, that was that was great. It was a good change, and like that. So. Well, okay, we're, we're headlong into the Christmas holiday season, this being um, the second longest uh, that you could have. Uh, so, right, what, what is the definition of Thanksgiving? It was declared by Franklin Roosevelt, I think in 1934, as the fourth Thursday in November. Not the last Thursday. It used to be the last Thursday in November, but the, uh, that could be as, as late as... November 30th, and then there's only 25 days to Christmas. In the old days, you know, people really didn't do Christmas until after Thanksgiving. So, uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt said, okay, we'll make it the fourth Thursday. And so that means uh, uh, it can be as um, it can be as, as early as the 22nd. It can be as early as the 20. So this year is the 23rd. So almost as early as it can be. And uh, But uh, it can be as late as uh, well, I guess it could be as late as the 28th, right? The 7th, the 14th, 24th. Yeah, 4th Thursday, it could be the 20th. Okay, so uh, that's Thanksgiving, turkey and stuffing uh, all done, and we're heading towards the holiday season. And on Kitchen Table Progressive, I want to talk about, <laughs> there we go, um, three things that could make America great again, but which the Republicans would flatly refuse uh, and the first one is, I have to get right to it, is, I'm sorry, uh, you, now, people, you may disagree with this, and these are ideas that I guarantee you've never heard before, because they're mine, and, I, you know, unless you've heard me talk about them, I don't, I don't steal ideas from other, other media, I, I have my own ideas, so. The first one is, people, the nation will be 250 years old in 2026, and, damn it, we need a new national anthem, <laughs> we really do. The, the, the one we have, the Star Spangled Banner, is stinks. It is a crappy song. It's a stolen song. It's a stolen 
British song. And not only was it a stolen British song, it is, if you wouldn't believe it, the 85th, at least the 85th version of this old British jingle, British ditty, that was actually first called uh, to Anacreon. And Anacreon means is A-N-A-C-R-E-O-N, to Anacreon in heaven. And hopefully Devin will be able to pull up uh, a short version of this so we can listen to it. Okay. Um, We do have it? Okay. Okay. Well, uh, okay. So, uh, but anyway, the, the song, <laughs> it's been done by every damn college men's glee club in, in the world. That's where I learned it. Uh, because I, I was a music major and I, you know, I was a music theory and composition, you know, brainy type music major. Um, I, I, I was, so what they did with us, we had to have a performance requirement. And those of us who, you know, were not the raciest, you know, Beethoven masters of the piano, uh, they put us, <laughs> they put us in the glee club and, uh, which was ended up a lot of drinking, and anyway, we learned to an Akron in heaven, which was the with a song that the Star Spangled Banner is based on. Now, Francis Scott Key did write the words to the Star Spangled Banner as he was aboard a British ship. Uh, this is during the War of eighteen twelve, and he was witnessing the the Battle of Fort McHenry and the British onslaught by sea, uh, firing you know the cannon fire, and they fired. Uh, and the Americans were firing back. And that's so Francis Scott Key actually wrote, I think there were five strains to this, to the uh, what he called the Star Spangled Banner. Now, he didn't uh, actually intend for it to be a song. He was just writing down this kind of poetic, it's sort of poetic prose is what it is. Now, Francis Scott Key is not recognized as one of the America's great poets, uh, historically, he's not. Uh, but he uh, did write this, and it, it was, as I said, the 85th, at least the 85th version of this song called To Anacreon in Heaven. And I will tell you, Anacreon in Heaven was written in, in 1767 as the, I, it was called the Anacreontic Song, and it was dedicated to or by two members of the Anacreontic Society of London, which was a, a kind of a fraternity, you know, um, a fraternity that was, you know, celebrated the uh, the joys of wine and women. Um, uh, it was not a college fraternity. It was, a, you know, just a, a men's fraternity. And uh, the song was written, the words, words were written by Ralph Tomlinson, and the music was written by John Stafford Smith in 1867. It was published uh, in 1879 or 1880, and then, you know, every British, uh, you know, children's rhyme and parody was set to this tune. And then after Francis Scott Key wrote the words to the Star Spangled Banner, and that, that was the name of his, his poem, um, his uncle said, hey, why don't we set it to this stupid old British tune? And that's how it came about. It was not our national anthem until 1933. So... My parents, at least, were born before this was our national anthem. We didn't have a national anthem. I believe we had, we, by, by the way, the Pledge of Allegiance was written in 1892 by, uh, by uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, so I'll think of his name. He was, he was, a, he was a Baptist minister, uh, Francis J. Bellamy. Francis J. Bellamy wrote it in 1892 as a dedication to the 
uh, Chicago World's Fairgrounds, the Columbia Exposition. Um, and, and it was written just to uh, recite it on the, on the, uh, the designation day or the, what are they, what are they called? Not, not the uh, consecration, but the, the um, oh, I'm not I'm screwing up the words, but um, with, with the, dedication, the dedication of the fairgrounds. And uh, Bellamy wrote the, the words so that the following Monday, uh, the children could re- all re- across America could all recite it at noon at school, and they could participate in you know patriotism. And then it just took off. So actually, the Pledge of Allegiance was a pre- uh, even though it was written after the uh, after the, uh, the Star Spangled Banner, uh, it was recited. It was more, it was more familiar to Americans than than that. Uh, okay, so the the original uh, to to Anacreon Heaven. So he'll it, play it, but let me just say the words. It goes like this. To an to let me see to Anacreon in heaven where he sat in full glee, a few sons of harmony sent a petition that he their inspire and patron would be. The answer returned from this jolly old Grecian. <laughs> okay, voice, fiddle, and flute no longer be mute. I'll lend you my name and inspire you to boot. Besides, I'll instruct you, like me, to entwine the myrtle of Venus and with Bacchus's wine. Besides, I'll instruct you, like me, to entwine the myrtle of Venus with Bacchus's wine. Okay, so that's those are the words that were replaced, and I'll let you hear it now. And you're going to say, oh, this sounds a lot like the Star Spangled Banner. No, the Star Spangled Banner sounds a lot like this, with one exception. In the part where, um, um, by the dawn's early light, when we say by the dawn's early light, there is one note that's changed in the note is in the key of A is changed from a D natural to a D sharp. It makes the scale go from a, an A major scale to a, an A Lydian scale. So that it ends up on the, on the E. This is all very wonky, but if Devin, if you have it, let's play it for the, for the folks. That he there inspire and patron would be when this answer arrived from the jolly old Grecian voice fiddle and flute no longer be mute. I'll lend you my name and inspire you to boot, and besides, I'll instruct you like me to So there you have it. And my disagreement with some of the phrasing uh, in that version, notwithstanding, not bad. Okay, it was not bad. Uh, pretty clear you could hear the words and you get the idea. That's what, our, that's what our national anthem is based on. Now, folks, this is American music. We are Americans. We can do better than that, right? Than, than rip off a damn jingle from, the, from Brit- 16th or 18th century British jingle. Just because what? Why? Because we have to have these words? I'll tell you, a better song by far as the national anthem is America the Beautiful, but I think we need a new national anthem. Now, here's my idea. In 2026, here's what we could do. I think what Congress needs to do 
is allocate, pass an allocation for two hundred for two hundred and fifty million dollars to find the writer, the composer of a new national anthem. And it would be a contest. It would be a song contest. And I think we could even get uh, America's Got Talent maybe to run it. And here's how I would do it. So I would I would have every state, this is going to be all in the 50s, right? Because uh, we have 50 states. and da, da. So every state would submit 50, th- would, there would be 50 finalists from every state. And those 50 finalists, if you become one of the 50 finalists, you, you could win. $50,000, right? See, we want people to, to say, oh, yeah, I want to do it. I want to do this. There's, there's money in this. So if you become one of the finalists, you could win $50,000. Now, if you are the finalist, if you win in your state, you can get $1 million, okay? $1 million. If you, if you are one of the 50, you would get 50000 And if you actually are the winner in your state... You get another million dollars. Okay, so then we have it down to 50 finalists, 51 million dollar winners for the grand prize of 50 million dollars to to be selected as your song to be selected as our new national anthem. And if we did this, this would take us to about 225 million dollars and then we could use the other 25 million dollars uh for the project expenses and so on like that so uh, that's that's my basic budgeting of this project and i think it would be great because look if we had 50 finalists from 50 states that's 2500 songs to choose from something's good can, is going to come from that we have talent. America's got talent. Do we have to put up with this this crappy old song that was stolen from the British, that cheesy old thing, and that was been dressed up in a, in a little harmony change, as I mentioned, to make it sound a little more dramatic? But we could. We could absolutely found, find a song that has lyrics that are representative of America today. They're uplifting. The, the Star-Spangled Banner is about bellicosity and how great a battle it is. And it's all about rockets and red glare and bombs bursting in air. Is that who we are? And then the other strains are, 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 are and why we had people taking a knee, uh, people of color taking a knee at football games, is because it advocates slavery. It's, that's not a good song. It's not what represents America today. And we could have a much more spirited uh, a song that, we're just in the habit of singing this thing. It's not a great song. It's not a great song. Um, people say it's hard to sing. Well, um, the range of these national of the Star Spangled Banner is an octave and a half, which is not huge. Um, most people aren't in practice of singing that. That's not a very wide range. Most great songs, like say, I, I love O Canada. O Canada is just an octave and another step. So. It's, it's a, just about an octave, and most people have that range. In fact, most of the national anthems that I've listened to uh, just while I was uh, checking this out, the, preparing this segment, was, you know, they're about an octave. So the, the Star Spangled Banner isn't that hard to sing. The cadenza, if you go, uh, 
Yeah, like Whitney Houston, Houston used to do, it's the two octaves. It goes up to the high A, and that's very impressive. And but again, two octaves is not for Whitney Houston. She could have she got to hit another octave. That wasn't impre- that wasn't great, but it sounds good. But if we had twenty five hundred contestants uh, submit songs, we would be on the verge and that, of a great a great new national anthem. And what we would do is. The winner would be honored at a 4th of July celebration on the 4th of July, 2026. And that would be a great birthday present for America. That would make America great again. We'll be right back. Back we are, Paul Richardson, with you here on Kitchen Table Progressive for another Sunday evening uh, here on AM 820 WCPT, uh, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Uh, in this segment, uh, I'll get into the, ref- the the one reform to the Supreme Court that I would like to see, which is constitutional, doesn't require a constitutional amendment, and would make a tremendous difference. It's a little complicated, involves a little bit of math, but I think you'll be able to follow it. Uh, but first... Uh, let's go right to the phones and talk to our friend Jim. Jim, how are you? How are you? Have a, how was your Thanksgiving? Uh, it, it, pretty good. Well, I had, I had one of uh, Tucker Carlson's specials. I had a Swanson turkey dinner. <laughs> I was going to mention uh, the GOP front runner is going to go down to celebrate with the. The president of Argentina would all dispatch because uh, I'm sure they can get some good advice from him. And I was thinking of Evita. He said, "Don't cry for me, Argentina." When I thought of it, anyway, he's supposed to go to. He's, he's supposed to go down there immediately. How this guy got elected, God only knows. I mean, he's probably some internet uh, debacle down there. I have no idea. I don't know if he's from Argentina, but apparently he's a. Uh, in the line of uh, the Perones, you know, in that line. But Trump, uh, but, you know, he, uh, you know, he, he likes, you know, he's, he likes anybody who is a, you know, who takes power by uh, devious means. (laughs) You know, well, he just, did you hear what he said? Uh, well, he keeps, he keeps he, he's not sure he's talking about, but he want, he's talked about the you know the president of China. He, he says he runs 1.4 people. He runs them. He runs 1.4 billion people with an iron hand. He runs them. It's, I mean, that's what I, you know. What if, if uh, anybody were to say that uh, uh, you know we, we we want Joe Biden to run you, right? I mean, does, does anybody does anybody want Donald Trump to run? He's not going to run me. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. He's going to take that puddle jumper down to Argentina and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, fumigate half the population down there. But anyway, I, I haven't heard anything about it. I, they, they slipped it into the news over the weekend or over the holiday weekend. And I was like, well, that's an odd thing to do. But, I, you know, whatever their strategy is, Catalina knows. Anyway, Paul, thanks a million, buddy. You have a good week. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Good to hear from you. Thanks again. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Down. You know, have you noticed that 
Oh, the tweet that Trump uh, was attacking the judge, uh, Judge Angeron and um, Letitia James and calling her, you know, racist. Uh, uh, She's a racist. Then he calls her peekaboo, peekaboo James. She's a racist. He calls her peep. I'm sorry, but now that uh, he's flinging the word, the racist thing around, remember everyone was upset. Oh, you can't call Donald Trump a racist. Well, he's doing it. So I, I think he's fair game. No, yeah. Anybody who call who who is pitching the word racist is fair game, and so are supporters. As far as I'm concerned, so are supporters. If you want to sign on and say how much you support Donald Trump, I say okay, you're a racist because he's you're supporting, you're signing on to him saying peekaboo James. By the way, with regard to the um, the previous segment about the, the national anthem, we want American music, and I'll tell you why. One thing we need a bit. I'll tell you something. Every note of a purely American music was written by a black person. Was written by, I'm not just saying a, a, a people of color, was written by a black person. That's it. That's, any, any music that can identify it as purely American uh, was written by a black person. The black people wrote Cakewalk, which started the syncopation. Uh, Scott Joplin and the... And the um, uh, the ragtime, blues, jazz, it's all black music. So it really makes sense that the people who wrote American music should have a, an opportunity to be part of that music when we sing an anthem to our, when we, when we have an anthem to honor our nation. It, it makes sense that, uh, no, no, whoa, no, this, this white guy who stole the song, no, I'm sorry. His words are the greatest. They're the best. We can't have any. For how long? How do we want to sing that crap? How long are we going to sing that crap? I don't like singing it. In fact, I don't sing it. I don't sing it, and I often don't stand. And uh, I mean, I'll stand. But I, did, I was at a baseball game one time, and because I wear, um, I wear, a, because of my eyesight problem, I, I wear sunglasses because the sun is very bright, and I wear also wear a visor. Or a baseball hat, and when they told us at, at one baseball game uh, to please stand and remove your hats, well, I don't remove my hat or my glasses because of singing the Star Spangled. So I stood, and some guy behind me, like he didn't just tap me on those shoulders. He said, "Hey, you're supposed to take your hat off," and I said, "Mind your own business, dude." And uh, it's like, okay, so. No, I, I don't. I, I think we need to have an opportunity for people who, the the people who built this country, to sing, to lend their their collective historical the talent that is American music, what we all know is American. And people say, well, what about country? What about you know bluegrass? Well, those are American, but those are borrowed from European influences. Those are not those are not purely American. They're they are American, but they're not purely American. What purely American came from black people. Okay. On to the Supreme Court. Here's what I think we need to do to really reform the Supreme Court that would not would not require um, the constitutional amendment. And here's what we do. First of all, unpack the court by doing this. Expanding it. Now, if you want to uh, if you want to um, if, if you want to say 13 or 15, I'd like to go to 15, and I'll, I'll tell you why. But 13 is fine. 13 is fine. 
Um, and here's what to do. Here's the reason we need to not just expand it, but use this technique. Because once you expand, if we have 13, and we have 13 um, uh, circuit courts of appeals, and each one could be then a rider of that circuit. That's the way it used to be. We used to have, we used to have nine districts and uh, federal districts, and each of the nine members were district were circuit riders. That's that means they're kind of the the each each member of the Supreme Court kind of oversees one of the circuits of appeals. We actually expanded to ten when we when um, Lincoln put Stephen Field on the court because we expanded to ten dict- districts, and then we thought, well, we don't need you know. We have 13 districts now, and we have nine. But we can expand to 13. That's okay. That's fine. But that's not the reason. Here's what we do. Um, the problem is if we just expand it, well, right as soon as one of the parties, one of the, you know, the Republicans or the Democrats, uh, appoints seven of the justices, well, it's, it's back to the way it is, right? It's, it's the 5-4 split. And not, then it'd be a 7-6 split. If you want it to 15, it'd be, this, uh, it'd be this, the 7-8 uh, split. You know, once you got the majority of half, more than half, then uh, it's all about you. But here's what here's what I would do. This is what we could do if we had. The, the other thing is the court does not hardly hear as any cases anymore. The court used to hear. Well, here's a quote from John Roberts from ni- 1983 when he clerked for um, Antonin's or for, for um, he clerked for uh, Justice uh, the Chief Justice um, Rehnquist. He said uh, he said this. Uh, the, the I'll have to I have to bring the quote to mind. Um, the fact that oh the fact the generally accepted notion that the court can hear only about 150 cases per year uh, gives the same sense of assurance as when the court uh, goes on recess and the Constitution is safe for the summer. He doesn't think it's good when the when the court hears cases. Now he said 150 cases. So yeah, back in the 80s, the court was hearing 150 cases. You know how many the John Roberts court is hearing now? About 80. Uh, just over half of that. Just 80 a year? What are these guys doing? Who's working for a living here? The court has heard as many as 300 cases, over 300 cases. Uh, Back a hundred years ago, the court heard many, many cases a year. But so we need to have the court hear more cases because there are more cases that are deserving of uh, time in this and before the, the highest court. But here's the other thing: what we could do, we could hear more cases if we did this. If we had thirteen, let's say fifteen justices on the court, but we still only each case only went before a panel of nine. You see, and so here's what you do. You assign cases by how many ways are there to draw nine justices from a bench of 15? And that's permutations, and I can tell you what the answer is because I'm not so bad at math. There are 5,005 ways to draw nine different course, nine different benches, nine different teams, so to speak, from 15 judges. And then you don't have the same mix of Amy Coney Barrett and Brad Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. No, those necessarily, that, that what we have now would necessarily be one of the permutations. But there would be many, be 5,004 others. If we went to 13 justices, uh, the, count, the count on that, just uh, calculated in my head, because this is a lot of 
multiplying. I think it's 745 permutations. There's 745 different ways to choose nine justices from a bench of 13. But you see, then they, they would still hear at least 150 a year. We should be able to hear by a percentage of, you know, uh, 50% more. It, with 13 justices, that is almost 50% more. We should be able to hear over 200 cases a year, certainly. And if you had 15, you should be able to hear close to 250 cases a year because the justices would be assigned to, and here's the beauty of it. Uh, one lawyer I know said, well, but how do you know which bench you're going to come in front of? Well, you put it in a computer, you have the justices you know, named, numbered 1 through 15, and the computer sorts them out. It's all, here's all the 5,005 5, permutations. And you're, you, when your court, when your case comes up, you're, uh, let's see, you get number one thousand two hundred seventy-one, and that that permutation includes blah, 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 these nine justices. Now you know who you're in front of, and that will be coming up on whatever date. It's just like just drawing. It's just like dealing cards, and then it's fair. There's no partisanship. There's there's no, and they meet those that bench, whatever bench they're on for that case. They meet. They talk about it just like they do now. I, I, this is this is like shuffling the deck. This is what we need to do to make justice fair, to make the Supreme Court really fair. It doesn't matter. We're not going to be fighting over the Senate with whole, you know, not not confirming people. Let them, let them confirm it, because it doesn't matter anymore. We're not trying to get that you know seven six split or that seven eight split or what we have now the five four. Well, it was another five to four decision by the Supreme Court. We wouldn't have that. It would still be a bench of nine making on, on every on each case, but it would be uh, it, it would be a different bench for every case for five thousand and five cases in a row would be different justices. And if you think about it, at a hundred and fifty, even if we were, if we were okay, listen, if we were if we were doing uh, with that many justices, two hundred and fifty cases a year, that's a different. That takes us. 20 years. That's a different arrangement for all the cases that will come to the court for 20 years. And you know, you know, as soon as you, as soon as, as soon as your case is filed in and it, give it a number, oh, this is your date and that's, that's the number and that's those who the justices are. You know, you know who you're going in front of and what kind of arguments you want to make because you need to know what those justices, how they think and so on. You would. You wouldn't have that complaint. And nobody could complain that they weren't getting a fair shake and that all of this partisanship on the court would be absolutely over. And it's totally constitutional. We don't have to change the Constitution. We don't have to limit people to their age or 18 years or none of that. It's just going to rotate, and it's, it's a fair rotation. Um, I don't know why, you know, all of the circuit courts of appeals, some of the circuit courts of appeals have as many as, I think, 28 justices. That's a lot. And then they take, when you go to a circuit court uh, appeals case, you, you, you get a pile of three of them. So that's like, how, can, how many ways are there to deal, uh, to, to draw three justices from a, from a, a panel of 28? Well, I could show you how to figure that out, but that's, that's a little bit wonky for the radio, isn't it? Okay, so I won't do that. I won't go into that. But I think this is a way to show America that it doesn't matter who's on the court. The court is really making constitutional decisions. 
and they are not politically motivated. And there's the end of, that's the other thing, there's the end of people taking things to the Supreme Court thinking that they've got a ringer, that they're going to, they've got it, uh, oh, I know who, and, and then whining and dining Clarence Thomas and, and um, Sammy Alito, you have no idea if they most likely, you have no idea whether they'll be on the case that your that your your case will actually have either one or both of them on it. You don't know, so there's no point in doing that. There's no point in whining and dining, or you know, anyway, influencing Supreme Court justices because you will have no idea which justices will ultimately be on the case that you you know you want to take to court. Uh, that's that's just the way it goes, and. We, there could be some things that I don't know why the chief justice should have. Maybe the chief justice could have a um, a prerogative to uh, exchange, you know, say I want to sit on this case, uh, and so exchange places with another justice who's been assigned to, a, you know, say I, I'm on. I'll give up this case. I'll give up my seat on this case because I really want to sit on another case, and um, that that might be. Something that, uh, I guess, I wouldn't have a problem with that if it's the chief justice. Uh, and then the other thing is, have, you know, we've also thought about, um, or talked about, because of the Speaker of the House debacle, that the Speaker doesn't have to be a member of the House. Well, maybe we could have a chief justice who doesn't actually sit on any cases. He's just an administrative justice. Maybe that's a new idea, too. Those are new things to think about for the Supreme Court. Be right back and talk about a new idea for taxes. For the last segment here on Kitchen Table Progressive, Paul Richardson with you here on AM 820 WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. And by the way, I, I, I'm, I'm getting just like someone, the, the, the hosts that annoy me, I, I have not given out the telephone numbers. So if you're a new listener and you wanted to call and argue with me, and I, I dearly wish somebody would sometimes, <coughs> actually a lot, I, I would wish somebody would argue with me, but... The number here is 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT, as they say. So this, the WCPT is, uh, it's 773-763, the 9278 is WCPT. So 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. So still open uh, for calls if you want to talk about uh, the Previous two topics, a new national anthem and reforming the Supreme Court uh, for this segment. A new idea about taxes, about how to fairly tax. And this is something that I can't get... (laughs) People are very wary about this, especially right-wingers. They're like, oh, interesting idea, because I say, hey, you want to get rid of the IRS, don't you? Oh yeah, I hate the IRS. The IRS uh, until they uh, then until they hear what the alternative. And you know, by the way, we didn't have an IRS before we had federal income taxes. Yeah, federal income taxes that sucks. You know, just government taking your money at gunpoint. That's uh, <laughs> that's 
I won't say his name. Uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, right wing talk show hosts in the Pacific Northwest. Out of uh, uh, out of he broadcasts out of Portland, but he actually lives in Washington State, and he's always talking about how the government can take your money at gunpoint. And well, you know what? Yeah, uh, taxes are kind of like that. <laughs> With the two things, there's no well, two assurances in life are death and taxes. You know, two things would be two certainties in life: death and taxes. <clears throat> so they've been able to do that since. Uh, you know, before Roman times, even they, you pay your taxes, or they just chop you in half with a sword. But I don't really think the IRS is that, you know, that dr- draconian. Um, they actually work with you. And but you want to get rid of them? We can get rid of the IRS. It's easy, and we could go back to uh, getting rid of the federal income tax that we all pay. In fact, I think it would be better if we got rid of the federal income tax. And here's why. Um, you watch this. Listen to the strategy here. The federal income tax, would, uh, at first, the Supreme Court um, decision in, in 1895, um, the Supreme Court ruled that federal income taxes were unconstitutional. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so we had to have a constitutional amendment. So in 1913, the 16th Amendment was passed that allows 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 the federal government to collect income taxes. Doesn't demand, doesn't require. So it allows the federal government. And so we have laws about how the income taxes are collected. So we, I'm not saying we have to overturn the 16th Amendment. I'm just saying we just don't. Don't use the laws. Just repeal the laws. That's constitutional. Let's repeal the laws uh, that require the, that, that allow the government, the federal government, to collect income taxes. And okay, so how are we going to do this? I propose that all taxes that we would pay as individuals, and here's why: this is a union of states, right? It's a union of what? Of states. How many members of the union are there? Fifty. Are you and I members of the union? No, we're not. Oh, this is also this is very legal. Oh, I hate when the legal people go. Oh, well, but 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 nothing. But you're not a member of the union. I'm not a member. You're not a member. None of God's children are a member except the states. The states said there are 50 members of this union. That's who should pay the dues, right? The members should. Okay. So, I'm not saying that people, us individuals, that we shouldn't pay taxes. <clears throat> I'm saying. We should pay taxes as part of our relationship to the member that we belong, that we're affiliated with, to our state. So, in other words, the only the only the only body that we pay taxes to is our state governments. Let them decide. Let our state legislatures decide how much we should have to pay, and then who pays the federal government are the state treasuries. The state treasuries pay the federal government their share, their due, how much their dues are. Well, how do you figure that out? <clears throat> okay, here's here's how we would figure this out. How much does Illinois owe, for instance? Or how much does Washington State owe? All right, well, let's say this is all going to be based on representation, so it would be completely within the Constitution, based on representation. Well, how are you, how are you what is your representation based on? It's based on your number of electoral votes, electors which is based on your number of federal districts that you're represented by a, a representative in the House of Representatives, and you also get 
two senators. So Illinois uh, has 20 electoral votes, which means it has 18, 18 congressional districts and two senators. So it gets 20 electoral votes. Okay, so that's that's it's that's its elect that is its electoral or taxable share, right? And um, Washington State has what do we have? Uh, twelve? Do we have twelve electoral votes now? I think maybe we do twelve. So we have ten, ten congressional districts and two senators. That's that's how they figure out how many electoral votes you have is how many congressional districts do you have and then you and you can look at this in article 2 section 1 paragraph 2 which describes how many electors how many how the states will appoint the numbers of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state is entitled in the congress so that's how you decide okay so then what that's your that's your representative share so then what you do the total number of shares, right, is 538, 538. There's 438 members of the House and 100 senators. <clears throat> so here's what we do. We take the federal budget, whatever it is. Let's say right now it's, it's about, I'm going to make it easy. It's about, it's over $5 trillion. So let's say it's $5.38 trillion. Okay, so if, if, that, if that were the federal budget, $5.38 trillion, well, how do you figure out what one share is? Well, you divide five five point three eight trillion by five hundred thirty eight, and you come up with ten billion. One share is ten billion. Okay. Okay. So, how much does Illinois owe? Illinois owes twenty times ten billion, which is two hundred billion to the federal government each year. Uh, Wyoming owes well; they have three electoral votes, and a share is ten billion. So, or one share, they have three shares, so they owe thirty billion to the federal government. Okay, and that's that's just how it works. Washington State has twelve electoral votes, so twelve times ten billion is one hundred and twenty billion. That's how much they each. This is how that's how the state owes. Okay, but you also have to raise. So you would pay taxes in your state to to meet your federal share. But you also have to pay taxes in your state to operate your state, right? So you see what's going to happen here is your representatives in the, you have to, you'll have, it wouldn't hurt anybody. For instance, the money really wouldn't be any different. Uh, whether, the, whether the federal government's taking it out of your pocket directly or is taking from your from your state treasury. So you pay, uh, but what you would pay is, to your, your your state treasury owes the federal government, you know, in, in Illinois' case, 20 shares, 20 times 10 billion. Okay, so then Illinois has to say, well, I have to get that from you, and I also, we have to tax you for uh, how to run the state of Illinois. All right, so number one, your representatives in Congress are not going to be go bloat, uh, they're not going to be voting for some giant bloated budget, are they? No, no way, because they're going to come back and say, and then say to this, they'll have to work with the state legislators to say, now you have to pass laws that raise a whole bunch of taxes on the constituents to make the federal budget that we just, we just, no, I'm sorry. Nobody's going to vote for a, for a giant stinky federal budget. Mm-mm, no way. But here's the other thing. 
that the state legislature will have to do. They're going to have to get the money from the folks who have it, don't they? And that means not only individuals, but corporations that are in their state. Business and corporations, there'll be nowhere to hide. Nowhere to hide. You can't just go to a small state because that'll really kick your butt. You go to a small state, (laughs) there's not very many people. They're going to need you more than ever. They're going to need the money from corporations more. So you will have corporations and business also pitted against the average individual. And the state legislature will have to listen to the people. Because you, you see how the, the, uh, the argument is working across purposes? Is that your representatives in Congress are going to have to keep that federal budget down. So they can't go home and say, yeah, guess what? We voted for this gigantic federal budget. Uh-uh. That won't happen. They won't be your representatives in Congress for long. The people will throw them out. And then <clears throat> the people in your state legislature, they're going to have to figure out, the people will have to say, well, we like the way you're taxing the, the monies that be in this state, whether it's my money and the corporations in my state, there's not going to be any play in favorites. The states will have to pay the federal government from the state legislatures and also raise enough money to run the state. Now, in a place like Washington State, where Democrats love to tax themselves, it won't be any different. It won't be any different. All the money will stay in the state. The st- it will stay in the state. It- I can't see how it would be any different. It- at least all from the get-go, it stays in the state. I can't see how progressive ideas will uh, will be hurt in their own states. But Here's the other thing that won't happen. There won't be any blue states subsidizing fascist red states, which is what's going on now. They will have to pay their own share because everybody pays the federal government based on shares. That's what they'll have to pay. <clears throat> and uh, and I, all I ever hear from right-wingers, oh, it sounds, like a, it sounds good, but... And then there, that's, the, that's the end of their sentence. Sounds good, but dot, 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 you know, ellipsis. But what? But what? Those are the values. It's just like abortion. The Republicans are the dog that caught the bus, and they got a mouthful of tailpipe. They, they could talk about all kinds of things because they know it won't happen. They just want the issue. If you actually come up with a fair way to solve it, which, you know, speaks to the, pro- speaks to the issue and, and helps solve their problem, then, the, oh, you know, it sounds good, but, you know, I don't, I don't know if it'll work. And, oh, it won't work. Nothing will work. Oh, Eeyore, it won't work. <laughs> yeah. It won't work because they realize that, oh, then I'm not getting a free lunch. I'm not getting a free ride. Oh, but I thought it was the, I thought it was the people of color and the liberals who always wanted a free ride. No, then they realize who's really getting a free ride are their rich buddies who's getting a free ride. And that's why they're going to have to go, whatever state their rich buddies live in, the state's going to be coming to them and saying, listen, we need to raise the revenue to pay our federal share, and we need to raise revenue to pay for how this state is run. And so if you got money here, and you, if you got money and you don't want to live here, go live somewhere else, okay? Go live somewhere else. But it'll be the same there, too. There's not going to be any... Corporations going state shopping the way corporations do. I think I'll go here. I think I'll go there. There won't be any. There won't be any uh, doing that. And by the way, this does not preempt or say that the Congress 
doesn't still have what is enumerated as the first power of Congress in Article 1, Section 8. The first power of Congress is to tax. But it would make it so that Congress would, it'd be a disincentive. Congress, for what about Medicare and Social Security? Well, okay, we could still have federal programs like that. Your FICA, your FICA tax, which you know the thing in the box in your paycheck that says FICA, Federal Insurance Contribution Act. Well, they could still take that out of your paycheck, but that's uh, that's an insurance policy, Federal Insurance Contribution Act. You're paying for insurance. That's really, uh, it's a tax that that you get back. It's not just a tax for. Remember the the, the um, sixty minutes we talked about six hundred dollar hammers. Remember that that one of the classic ones from a long time ago. For the military, that's not going to happen. There will not be all the. And, and the other thing is, there will not the the Republicans. This is their favorite thing to do, is to use the power of government to collect revenues and then pass them out to their buddies. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you for joining me once again. Uh, I've enjoyed being with you for this hour, uh, talking about these important issues about how to make America great again. So until next time, please join me next week at 6 p.m., immediately following family meeting for Kitchen Table Progressive, right here on AM820 WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. HeartlandSignal.com We'll see you.